This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. Kathleen Wynne and the Ontario government's cap and trade program will come into effect, and this is going to affect your gas prices. This is going to affect your home heating prices, and probably, I would guess, a few other prices. Uh, joining me in studio this morning to help wade through this and uh, hopefully talk us off the window ledge, because <laughs> a lot of people are uh, pretty frantic about this right now. Marvin Ryder from the DeGroote School of Business. Marvin, thanks for coming in. My pleasure, sir. Let's start right at the very beginning. This will affect, starting at the the, the first place we're probably going to see this, beginning Monday morning, is going to be our gas prices, right? We go to the pumps and we're going to see a difference. I'd actually argue you've already seen it. You may have noticed gas prices jumped this week and, and there was no reason for it. Crude prices hadn't moved at all. And I think that... The gas stations don't actually take advantage, do I wouldn't they? say it was the gas station owner, but I would think maybe the gasoline companies are trying it out. So therefore, on Monday, you won't see sticker shock. Suddenly, the prices won't change. They already changed four days ago. If you don't mind, I'm going to just back you up ever so slightly to remind people why we're doing this. Okay. So uh, there's this magical thing called climate change. We're all aware of it. Most of us believe in it. We see uh, winter coming later and later and later every year. We see massive hurricanes and tornadoes and other damaging storms. And the idea is that humanity is affecting the climate, mostly by releasing carbon dioxide. Now, this isn't anything new, but what we've seen is that our ability to change our behavior just doesn't seem to be there. In other words, we all know we should be burning less gasoline. We know we should be more environmentally friendly, but when push comes to shove, we don't do it. So what governments around the world have taken to is either a carbon tax directly or something called cap and trade. Both of these try to make the cost of carbon a little more expensive and thus incent you through your pocketbook to change your behavior. So absolutely, on Monday, Ontario's cap and trade system comes in and anything that generates carbon dioxide should cost you more. Now, we estimate, and, and you know, it's nice economists who try to do their best, that the average family is going to see their costs go up by about $13 a month. Uh, the biggest chunk of that is going to come from gasoline, probably something on the order of $7, $8 a month from that. If you heat your home with natural gas, then the remainder will come from that. And then a small amount will come from buying goods that had to be transported, and because they burn fuels to get them to the stores, that will go up. But do keep in mind this is an average price, and everyone listening to us will be different. For instance, if you heat your home with electricity, electricity prices aren't changing. <laughs> but you're already... In dire straits. You're if you're already doing in that. dire straits, but here's the good news your prices aren't going up. Electricity prices aren't going up because of cap and trade. We generate most of the electricity in this province today from nuclear sources or water sources. Yes, we do burn a few fossil fuels, but it's relatively clean power. If you heat your home with natural gas, however, your bill is going to be more. And when I say an average of $13 a month, the winter months will be more if you heat your home with natural gas. In the summer, your natural gas bill won't be as much. If I air condition with electricity in the summer months, then I won't see the same thing. So that will vary. Also, what we know is this is what's called a progressive tax. Now, what is that word? That's an odd word to talk about a tax, progressive. It doesn't mean that it's forward thinking. What it means is the more... Uh, income you have, the, the better your lifestyle is, the more tax you're going to pay. A relatively poor person is not going to be affected the same way who lives, say, in a one-bedroom apartment in downtown Hamilton, as opposed to someone who lives in a monster home in Ancaster out in the suburbs. And the, yes, they've got a $200,000 a year income and they drive an SUV. 
they're going to pay a lot more than $13 a month. And in a way, that's a good tax. A progressive tax sees the people who have the best ability to pay pay more than the people who have the least ability to pay. The the interesting thing about that, or at least the, the question a lot of people have about that is, the provincial government, the federal government, every government talks about how we want to help the middle class. We are for the middle class. No one, can, of course, can define what the middle class is. But does this not... It may benefit the lower class, the, the poorer class, because the progressive side of this. And we certainly don't mind if I don't think most people say, okay, if you can afford it, you can pay more. But does this not also, though, in some ways take aim at the quote, quote, middle class? Right. So uh, starting January 2nd, you're right. At this point, I'm paying a tax. What do I get out of this? Well, the, the first thing we're going to try to get you to do is to think about your behavior and say, if you don't like paying this tax, can you change your behavior? This might be the year to get a quote on putting more insulation into the attic so you burn less gas to heat your home. Or maybe this is a time to downsize your vehicle from a gas-guzzling SUV to something more sleek, or even consider an electric vehicle. Or maybe get the bike out and bike a little bit more when you have to go to the corner store. Now, having said that to you, we believe, again, those same nice economists believe that the province of Ontario is going to generate about $2 billion in revenue out of cap and trade. What Kathleen Wynne has said, and look, I, I know your listeners right now, I, they hear the word Kathleen and Wynne, they go, oh my gosh. Well, I have to take her at her word that this $2 billion is not going to go into the general revenue stream of the province. Instead, the province is going to use this money to give you back various incentives to become greener. So I would not be surprised if in March or April you hear about, say, a grant program that you can have your home, uh, say, the uh, do an energy audit on your home, find out where you're using the most energies, find ways to reduce. Or maybe there'll be more incentives for you to buy an electric car. Or maybe there'll be more incentives for you to convert uh, from electricity to natural gas or whatever it happens to be, or excuse me, from natural gas to electricity. But I would suspect we're going to start to see these programs. If you're a rural person, my words scare you again a bit because you're already feeling hard done by. I wouldn't be surprised to see special programs for farmers. I wouldn't be surprised to see things for people who live in the north where there's you know large swaths of undeveloped areas. How do I get you into this grid system? So we, this is the second half of this we don't know. They're going to generate revenue from cap and trade what are they going to do with it? And they have promised transparency, meaning they're going to show you exactly how many dollars come in and how they're spending it going back out. At this moment, it's just a wait and see. We've got to see how they actually do this. And when you say July or August or June or July for these programs, or it could even be a little closer to an election. <laughs> well, Although it, it, that may be a little cynical to suggest, but... I don't think I don't believe they're going to wait till June of 2018. I think they want to because there will be enough consternation in January, February, March. But also from the province's standpoint, you, you don't want to announce a program till you're actually sure how much revenue you're taking. So it's all well and good that nice people like me take an envelope out and do a calculation. But what do people do if, for instance, instantly people see these additional costs and they instantly begin to change their behavior, they're going to gen the province is going to generate less revenue. So th therefore, I can't announce this big program because I'm not going to have the revenue. So the province doesn't really want you necessarily instantly to do that. They're like a bank in a way. They want you to be paying interest rates a little bit. They want to bring in some <laughs> revenue to be able to help with this. But eventually I, 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 change. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think candidly, we really don't know. We're entering a new world. And, and it's a world that we got into when we signed the Paris Climate Accord. Now, I know there are people, and I've even said it myself, I'm a little worried about what this means for our economic uh, circumstances when the United States under Donald Trump may move in a different direction. Donald actually says he'd like to burn more coal, and he doesn't believe in climate change, and all this carbon data is, is crap. 
Goodness. So at the same time that our neighbors immediately to the south, 50 miles down the road, are doing one thing, we're going in the opposite direction. But I, here, here's another little statistic I think people will often throw at you. They'll say, well, why are we doing this? Ontario contributes less than 1% of all the carbon to the world. You know, start with someone bigger. Why are we going first? And the answer is yes, we contribute a small amount to the carbon total, but when you put it on a per capita basis, Ontarians are some of the worst carbon emitters in the world. We're a relatively small population. Yes, we don't have a lot of emissions, but when you divide it all through, we're some of the worst carbon emitters. And if this forces people to relook at what they're doing with carbon, this is actually why the policy is there in the first place. The number that was put out, and I've just, uh, you mentioned, I think it was, it was 16 or $17, as you said, a month that we're supposedly going to be affected by this when it comes down to our bottom line. But I can't believe that it won't be higher than that. And here's why. Because you touched on the fact that we're going to pay a few dollars more at the gas pump. We're going to pay 6 or $7 more in our home heating. But you alluded to it in your answer and you sort of slid through there. Okay. And I know you were getting to it, but all we buy goods that have to be driven to the stores mm-hmm. and, and, all, and, and at factories that have to heat themselves and run things. And all those costs, those companies are not going to absorb those and say, oh, well, that's just the cost of doing business. All those things, so bananas and oranges and fruit and vegetables and bricks and those things are all going to be ultimately passed down to us, correct? I'm going to say yes, but I, 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 we've got to split it a little bit. So the first question I have is, well, what is the source of these items? If it's domestic, in other words, I'm buying something from British Columbia, then everyone's going to be doing some form of carbon taxing. If not this year, under Justin Trudeau, it'll be the next year. So if Kathleen didn't, Wynne didn't do this for January 1st, 2017, Justin would make you do it on January 1st, 2018. But international things like bananas and oranges may not, because it would depend upon the jurisdiction. Most of the energy being used is purchased outside the country, even buying product from the United States, if they fill up their gas tank on that side of the border, they're going to be paying at a different rate than on this side of the border. So we're not just quite clear what's going to happen on those things. Uh, and then but can that not hurt then our domestic economy? It, it could, you know, absolutely. And again, the concern is we're doing something ahead of our neighbors nearby. So if we're doing something that New York State, Michigan, Ohio, and Pennsylvania are not doing, and I'm a business that operates in all of those jurisdictions, maybe I'll shift some of my work to the cheaper place. So this, this is the question, and I think Kathleen Wynne and the others are going to be watching January, February, March very closely. Are the revenues coming in at a greater than expected amount? Then that might suggest the cap and trade is too high. Is it lower than? And, and we're just entering a bold new world. And not just if we're doing it and they're not, but if we're doing it, and as you mentioned, Donald Trump says we're going to pull back a little bit. So not only are we moving away mm-hmm. to cost ourselves a little more, but then if they cost themselves a little less, the gap gets bigger. Exactly. And so, uh, I, but I would, I guess I'm going to say, part of me, I guess I'm a progressive on another level, I, th- I think it's time we start to be serious around carbon. The, the effects of climate change in my lifetime cannot be argued against. I, as far as I can see, I cannot argue against that. And if we don't start taking action now, what's it going to be like in another 20 or 30 years? Now, it is odd, again, here's another funny part about climate change. In studies about the 187 countries in the world, there are about five who benefit from climate change. And amazingly, one of them is Canada. Because suddenly, if we have warmer seasons, land to the north of us that wasn't suitable for farming, that you couldn't grow crops on, suddenly it becomes arable. The loser in this really is the United States. A, because you have a lot of it which is very low, so if there's oceans rising, they're going to be flooded. But also the Midwest, which is a grain bowl at the moment, a couple of degrees of temperature could turn that into a dust bowl pretty quickly. So where we gain, the United States definitely can be a loser. 
So what you're saying then is for Canada, we should all idle our cars for 10 to 15 minutes a day to try and drive up the carbon and, dri- and increase the global warming so we can become more profitable. If you don't mind spending more money, sure. <laughs> that's, tr- that's true. If it's a company car. Yeah, it's a company it, car. Yeah, let her, just let it go. the paying for the gas. I just, I look at this and with the cost of electricity, which has been the thing hanging around yep. Kathleen Wynne's neck, I just have to believe that w- even if you're right, even if this is for purely right reasons, mm-hmm. if people start Monday to see costs going way up, even if it's just a perception, mm-hmm. this is going to be devastating. For, I mean, I don't know how much lower she can get in the polls, but whatever margin there is there, this is going to hurt. I would think this is going to hurt. I don't know how many people are going to be as understanding as you, I guess Thank is what you. I'm saying. Yeah. So uh, let me go back to the first thing you said there was, I'm not sure how much lower she can go. It is quite possible that Kathleen Wynne is sacrificing herself for the greater good. Now, I, again, I know people will debate the greater good. We needed to make some investments in our electrical infrastructure. I can tell you I've traveled around the world where I can't rely on electricity the way I can in Ontario. I have been in cities where I've actually been notified there's going to be a brownout this afternoon from 2 to 4, so unplug things so you don't get surges. I don't get that in Ontario. So I'm not, I'm not opposed to some investment in the grid. But I'm also not opposed to some investment around green energy. But you're absolutely right. She's taking us to some bold new place. The cost of this beyond the dollars and cents I pay may be her political career. The, the only other thing I can say, though, is that election is in 2018. And if you remember the last election, she should have lost the last election. She was trailing badly in the polls, and yet somehow Tim Hudak found a way to shoot himself in the foot. And she came back not just squeaking in with a minority, but with a majority. So we have a new untried leader of the progressive conservatives. The progressive conservatives had actually supported this carbon system when it was proposed at Queen's Park. It was the NDP who were worried about unfair burdens on the population. So it'll be interesting to see how this is spun during an election campaign. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Again, shocking seems like the appropriate word, not just because Debbie Reynolds was famous, but because of the connection. The daughter dies and a day later, mom dies and her son, Carrie Fisher's brother, said that his mom had died of a broken heart, which is in its own way, lovely and poetic and dramatically tragic, of course, but of course it's a cliche, right? I mean, broken heart is a cliche. No one actually has... it seems like it anyway, right? Well, then you start hearing about Neldon and Helen Potter. They were an, an Idaho couple who were married for 73 years, but this year they died less than 12 hours apart of natural causes in December. Or you hear about Dolores and Trent Winstead who were in Nashville, married 63 years. And this year, less than 12 hours after he died, she died. Or Kenneth and Helen Fumily, who were 70 years married in Ohio and died 15 hours apart. Or Don and Margaret Livingood, who were married 59 years. And in August, down in North Carolina, she passed away and he followed nine hours later. Or Clifford and Marjorie Hartland, he was 101, she was 97. They died hours apart on their 76th wedding anniversary. You start hearing these and more and more and more. There was even one not long ago locally. Ramzan and Lila Manick of Stony Creek died within hours of each other after 54 years of marriage. And again, you hear more and more of these stories and you say, well, wait a second. I thought, I assumed that a broken heart was a cliche. Dying of a broken heart was a cliche, but you start to wonder, maybe there's actually something to this. Maybe there is some physiological, real 
thing that happens in some people from sadness, from emotion, from trauma, whatever it is. Well, to help us figure this out and decide whether or not these are all coincidences or if there's something real here, Theo Sellis, a registered family therapist, president of Integrity Works, who joins us now. Theo, thanks for doing this. Yeah, you're welcome. How are you? I'm great, thanks. So so let's get right to that. Are these, I listed a bunch of them here, and we heard about Carrie Fisher and her mom. Are these all just weird coincidences, or is there actually maybe some truth to the saying that there is possible to die of a broken heart? Yeah, I, I imagine that some of them are coincidences. Um, you know, we tend to hear these stories, and we like these stories because they are very romantic, and they kind of bring meaning to our lives, and it's a, it's a kind of a tidy way of wrapping up existence. We like them. Um, so, yeah, there, there's some coincidences. There's also, I think, there's like a loss of a will to live, you know, where when your partner dies or your child dies or someone that's really dear to you dies, you might give up your willingness to take care of yourself. So maybe you're not directly dying of a broken heart, but you're dying of the impact of not taking care of yourself. Or, you know, maybe your partner was the person who was the one that was responsible more for your care, or maybe you give up your health trying to nurse that person, and so you sort of in a weakened state. But it turns out there is something actually called broken heart syndrome, where there's actually studies that say that show that your heart does go through changes, like that there's certain chemicals that are, you know, related to the fight-or-flight syndrome that actually change the shape and the ability of the heart to function during this very acute time. And so technically, I suppose you're not dying of a broken heart, but you're dying of an altered heart, a heart that's is not functioning as well as it could have been, and especially if your heart was maybe not so strong in the first place, may not be able to handle that additional stress. So I guess technically you could say there's this truth to broken hearts, dying of a broken heart. Well, and I read this morning that there were, and again, it's it's one of those things that it's really hard to make a scientific solid connection. You believe that there is something here because of the timing or whatever, but something like 6,000 cases a year in the States, I don't have numbers for... Canada. And interestingly, most of these, it seems, happen in women, which is why it's also called the widowhood effect as, you know, but nonetheless, I look at this and, and you talk about the fact that it affects people. Is this a, is this a, a sorrow, uh, an outcome of sorrow purely, or is it a stress related thing that happens? Yeah. Well, how do you separate the two? You know, when, I suppose, you, yeah, right. Cause if you, on some practical level, on some very fundamental, not very romantic level, we're all a, kind of a bag of chemicals. And so, you know, when we have fluctuations in chemicals, that sort of results in our experience of sorrow. So you can't really separate what's a physical versus a psychological slash emotional experience. So, um, you know, there's no doubt that when we, when we open our hearts, here we go, using this poetic language, to another person, we really love them. They become a part of who we are. It's not just a, another person. They become part of our identity in a way. We, you know, we, we're a parent, and so if we lose a child, we're, we're, how do we go about living our lives being a parent without that child? If we're, you know, if we're a partner and we lose that partner either through death or even through divorce or breaking up of a relationship, I think oftentimes that's not thought of as, as in the same lines. You know, it's not just a loss through death, but you can lose someone and they're still alive, but you can't connect with them anymore the way you used to. That's a big part of who you are as a, as a person, and, and, and people literally feel bereft of that experience. How do they go about going on feeling the same way, having the same will, to live, still feeling good about themselves, still wanting to be able to take enjoyment of their lives when that, that aspect of who they are, they can't live that as fully as they used to be able to because that person no longer is there. And 
And of course, it's incredibly stressful. And you, you know, you mentioned a couple minutes ago that the ideas of you know, if you have a partner die or a child die, you lose the will to live, or if someone has been your caregiver. And, th- and those, I think, clearly, I think a lot of people could understand that, especially if it's over a period of time. If you have a spouse who is your primary caregiver and she or he passes away, and three months later your health has deteriorated, I think we understand that. Mm-hmm. This, is, this is more the idea of within hours or within a day or two that the level of stress, the level of sorrow, the level of grief has actually changed something physiologically in your body, yeah. which, j- again, just seems very poetic in a sad way, but almost hard to believe that it could happen that quickly. Well, if you think about it, if you, that fight or flight syndrome that's associated with chemicals like, like adrenaline and noradrenaline, these are, you know, literal physiological experiences that our body has that impacts the heart's ability to function very well. And so quite literally, you could say that that person, um, that, 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 that thing that we call that, uh, that sort of like, a, a Broken heart syndrome literally is not just a psychological one, but a physiological one. You know, when we when we have like a sudden scare, someone jumps up behind you and scares yep, you, yep. and you kind of have that rush, right? That puts a puts a certain kind of pressure on your heart cell. So that that surge, your heart starts, blood rate starts in, in, in raising, your heart's pumping a lot faster, and so you can see it's quite a shock to the system. And so it seems like. What they're finding is that, and it's not surprising to people who've really lost, whoever lost someone and gone through intense grief, uh, they'll certainly talk to you about feeling that kind of chest pain and that, that sort of, uh, it's the same kind of thing that they would feel as if they were like, had like a fear or loss, like a, a real kind of a shock to their system. But it does require that, right? It does require the shock to the system because as silly as it sounds, when we're talking about how this could be a psychological thing, if I was just upset with life and I'm otherwise healthy and there's no big moment, I couldn't just lie in bed and will myself to die. It doesn't work like that. You can't just make yourself go away. But if you have that giant shock combined with that, perhaps you end up with a situation like this. Maybe, but you know, if you think about people with mental health issues, depression, they are more likely to die as well because, and again, that's linked to this experience that there's a stress, you know, chemical referred to as cortisol, I think. That's the one that usually is associated with a kind of a stress experience in the body. And if you are thinking negatively a long period of time, uh, you're really feeling anxious or sad a long period of time, it's not necessarily the sudden shock, it's the ongoing wear and tear of that on your body as well that can be damaging to you and weakens you physically. People, people have a hard time understanding this because I think we're sort of used to trying to separate the physical from the emotional, from the psychological, you know, like we sort of see them as distinctly different things, but, um, you know, all of, we're, we're all that all at once. We're not just a physical, you know, you can't separate the physical from the psychological. Yeah, you just can't, we, we, you're right, we just can't touch the psychological. If you have a, a, a spleen that's not working or something, something else, we can, we can touch that, we can operate on that and fix it. It's much harder to operate on the psychological. Yeah, and it's harder, in that makes it harder for us to deal with that personally or when someone that we love is going through a difficult time when they're grieving. You know, it's, uh, we can't just kind of send them to the doctor or give them a pill. We, now we're faced with this loss that they're going through, this grief that we're going through. We're trying to find ways of supporting them, but there's no, how do we go about touching that? How do we go about doing something about that? How do we go about helping them? It makes it more complicated. 
So if this is true, if, if the possibility of dying of a broken heart is true, does that mean, would you suggest then, that every person who loses a spouse, loses a loved one, loses a child, is every single person then in that scenario susceptible to this happening? <laughs> well, I think that we're all susceptible to grief and loss. The more we, you know, again, thinking about it in poetic terms, again, we more, the more we open our hearts to someone, the more we you know, allow ourselves to feel deeply and connected to some another person. And I'm going to say this as well as both pets, too. Something people don't talk a lot about is that people are really connected to their animals, too. So the the more connected you feel to another person or another being, the more you're going to feel that loss of impact on yourself. So, um, you know, it's kind of a tried and true thing. The more, you know, you you open your heart to love, you open your heart to all those beautiful, wonderful things associated with love, but it takes courage to love really well because the more you love really well, the more you open yourself to intense pain. And again, because pain, of course, is stressful, um, that means you're more likely to have, you know, just this sort of negative effect. I don't think it's a common thing. I don't think you have to worry about, well, if I, if I lose someone, I'm going to die the next day. But you are statistically more likely to die within a certain period of time after the loss of someone that you're grieving intensely, grieving intensely for a number of reasons, not just about the heart again, but also because you're less likely to take care of yourself. You've, again, that loss that will to, to find meaning and make sure that you're taking care of yourself properly, eating properly. Maybe you can't sleep anymore, and we all know that sleep is important to our health. So there's a number of factors that you might be experiencing that may make it statistically more likely for you to die after the loss of a loved one. So if I, let's say, and and... Of course, this could be anybody, but I think probably most of us, most of the stories that we hear about this, the Carrie Fisher, Debbie Reynolds one is a little unique because it's not two, it's not spouses who had been together for a long time. It's a mother and child, of course. It's, it's you know, very significant. But let's say you had two reasonably elderly parents and one passed away. What would you do to try and understand whether the re- surviving spouse was at risk of this? Yeah, and I think, it, I think what I would do is just focus on doing what I ordinarily would do regardless I wouldn't be thinking well I'm going to be going to be there for them just in case they die I'm going to be there for them because they need to have my comfort and my company um, so that they can feel like they're supported and someone is um, you know uh, being with them in their moment of their time of real sorrow you know um, the thing to do is, is to not try to rescue a person from that or try to fix that for them they, you can't do that the idea is just Make sure that they don't feel alone with, with uh, by them sort of feel alone in the middle of all that intense grief and pain. You know, you're there to comfort them, to reassure them that you're with them, that you love them. You maybe take care of them, maybe make food for them if they can't, you know, find in themselves to kind of cook for themselves. So you're there to support them. You're not there to kind of try to, you know, save their lives. You're not going to say, well, for three months it sounds. But statistically speaking, for three months that's the you know, most people die within three months, and so let's get them through the three months, through these three months, and then uh, you know the danger risk is is kind of less, and I can kind of back off. You just do what you ordinarily do. It's like, you know, you're there for a person, you love that person, you want to make sure they don't feel alone in the middle of their pain. I'm guessing this is going to sound like a weird question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Um, yeah, I love those. <laughs> no, but mo- m- most of the time when you read these stories, again, of these people who have been married for 60 years, 70 years, 75 years, whatever it is, these these incredible stories where they've been together forever and then they pass away within hours of each other, almost inevitably, the moral of the story that these surviving family members give is this is a good thing. 
that they are together now. They don't have to suffer. That that it's really you know it's sad that the first one went, but if one's going to go, it's kind of better that they both went. Is that is that a self defense mechanism, or is there anything actually to that? Well, you know, maybe it's better for the person who ordinarily would have had to live for the next year, two years, five years, ten years with this intense grief, who can make that call what's best for another person. Is it best for that person to survive or not survive? That's impossible for us to do. I think it certainly is a comforting thing for us to say for ourselves, and that's one of the things that we're kind of faced with at the at times like this, is that um, they're gone. There's nothing we can say to them or for them. We're left with the pain, and so how do we go about being able to, be able to move on ourselves? How do we go about living with our pain? And so it's, you know, it's, it's helpful to us to have this kind of a story that, um, you know, they're together now, and that's, uh, that's a beautiful thing. So you kind of imagine that they're continuing to live on, but they found each other and they're no longer alone. Of course, that's very comforting. It's, it's, uh, it's a useful, helpful thing for us to believe that that's, that that's the case, and who knows? Maybe that's true, maybe it's not true. No one can know that for sure, but people certainly believe these things, and I think that there's comfort in them, in that for them. Well, it, 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 I guess it stops the perpetuation of the grief. Because if you've already had one person pass away and now a second person, somewhere along the way, you want to actually find some kind of end to that or some kind of silver lining or something. And that allows the surviving people to believe that somehow this is a good thing and it it probably makes it easier to mourn. Yeah, but it's really important for you to not say that to somebody else. It's the kind of thing that might be really helpful to say to yourself because if that's what you believe and that's what gets you through, then that's great. That's really important. But the last thing I think you want to be doing when you encounter someone else in their in their grief, so let's suppose uh, you know you you are a friend of uh, of someone who just lost both their parents very shortly one after the other. It's not very helpful at all to say, well, you know, they they at least they're together now, they're in a better <laughs> place, and they're not suffering. Um, you know, it just shows you how much they loved each other. That's really now you focusing on what you think you need to do in order for you not to feel so helpless in the face of someone else's grief. That's not a good thing to say to someone else. That may not be something that they believe. That's, uh, that's, that may be you kind of coming across like you're trying to cheer them up, and that's disrespectful and kind of hurtful. They're in the middle of pain. The last thing they need for you is to try to fix that for you. Death isn't fixable. Grief isn't fixable. It's something that you end up needing to live with and have other people be there with you so that you don't have to live with it by yourself. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. What is coming up in 2017? There is one thing that we can predict with some degree of certainty. Not a, not a guarantee, I suppose, because anything can happen, and we know how governments work. We know how bureaucracies work. Sometimes roadblocks get put up on things that we thought were going to happen. But if there's one thing we can predict based on what we know is coming, it's in October of this year, or next year, 2017, whatever files remain sealed about the assassination of John F. Kennedy in Dallas are to be released. This is the year that several, a number of years ago, it was the year that was identified as this is the time that all these things are going to be open. And as a result, it's the year that conspiracy theorists and the assassination assassination researchers have been waiting for because there are 3,600 some documents that have remained secret classified until now that are finally going to be put out for study by the public. Now, will these documents identify the killer? Hmm. 
I don't think anyone expects that. So what is in them and what are they going to tell us? And is it going to answer any questions? Well, Dr. Tom Whalen is an associate professor of social sciences at Boston University. He's the author of the book JFK and His Enemies, and he's been someone who has spoken about the JFK assassination and JFK many times. He joins us now. Dr. Whalen, thanks for doing this. My pleasure. I am guessing that when they finally release these, whatever it is, 3,600 pages of documents, there will not be a highlighted, underlined uh, line that is going to say, and the real killer is... We're not going to see something Probably like that not. in there. Probably not. And a lot of documents have been destroyed. Uh, you know, for example, the FBI file in Dallas. You know, Lee Harvey Oswald walked into uh, the FBI headquarters in Dallas, Texas, a month before the assassination. You know, saying he's going to blow up the headquarters and the Dallas police force uh, if they had stopped if they didn't stop harassing him. And they, Jagger Hoover, ordered that destroyed. That note he left um, afterwards, but. I think what these papers could reveal is if Oswald had any connections, and that would point to a larger conspiracy. You know, and I think what a lot of serious historians are, are, are going to try to look at here, hopefully it will be available, is a few weeks before the assassination, Oswald visited the Soviet embassy in Havana. And we don't know what the conversation was there. Um, maybe the CIA did know. Maybe there was wiretap. Who knows? Um, but that might shed light on motive and what exactly what was going on in the largest scheme of things. Oswald was, you know, uh, a fanatical uh, Castro advocate by all accounts. And we know that President Kennedy was trying to kill Castro uh, clandestinely through the CIA. There was a larger operation called Operation Mongoose that was uh, controlled or run by his brother, Robert F. Kennedy, out of the Justice Department. So Castro undoubtedly knew about this, and if we're trying to kill him, maybe Castro was going to try to kill Kennedy in return. So that might be an interesting wrinkle uh, from all this, um, if those papers reveal anything regarding a possible Castro connection. A while back, uh, I think it was just a year or so, maybe less than a year or so ago, the head of the National Archives Special Access Branch, where I guess these have been held, said that she doubted there was going to be anything truly relevant to the assassination in the documents. So there was, no, again, we shouldn't expect that there's going to be a smoking gun. What you're suggesting is the fact that there may not be a smoking gun may not mean that they are irrelevant or inconsequential. There could be pieces here to be connecting to other pieces that we have that would then start to paint a picture. Right. I mean, it's, it's going to be part of a larger mosaic. You know, for example, we didn't know until decades afterwards uh, the assassination of Franz Ferdinand, which set off World War I in 1914, that the killer, uh, a guy, a young man like Oswald, disturbed by the name of Princep, had ties to the uh, Serbian intelligence agency. Um, so, <laughs> I mean, that's, you know, it, it takes a long time. History is a slow, deliberative process here, but I think over time, hopefully, you know, the truth will out here, but it comes out in drips and drafts. Why have these documents been kept secret for so long? 1963 is a long time ago now. Why, at some point, 15, 20, 25 years ago, why would they not have come out by then? Why are we still waiting? Well, that, that's the very nature of the federal government. It's very reluctant to release documents. Um, and the, it has to go through the agencies, various agencies, approval process. It's long and cumbersome. And 
you know, I think that's just part of the bureaucracy. You know, it's interesting. You know, I, I looked at some of the FBI stuff, and you know, the beginning of the 21st century was finally released. And Hoover, Hoover's um, comments on the uh, assassination and his private converse, correspondence to various agents and officials within the FBI, and and Hoover basically um, said that we screwed up as the FBI. Oswald should not have been within a country mile of the president. Uh, you know, why was he not put on a special watch list, you know, this former defector to the Soviet Union? And behind the scenes, about 30 agents were disciplined. And, in fact, the, uh, the Dallas agent was transferred to some, you know, I think Kansas City, some far-off place in terms of punishment. So, you know, we didn't find out about that until the beginning of the 21st century. But you have to remember, too, government bureaucracies, particularly like the CIA or the FBI, if a mistake is made, they're very reluctant to admit it. You know, here in Boston, we just had the Boston Marathon bombings not too long ago, and there's a lot of criticism pertaining to the FBI. Um, how, why didn't they catch it ahead of time? They seem to have the information available, just as apparently the FBI did in uh, November of 1963. They just didn't connect the dots. So I doubt we're going to see those Boston Marathon bombing FBI files for quite some time either. And that, and you, at least you can argue that that makes sense as far as a very uh, recent thing because you still have potentially delicate information about operations or things like that that could be in there, whether there was a mistake or not. But when you, again, are going back to 1963, there's, there's no way the government could argue that something that's in there is sensitive operationally because it still is in place today. Well, operationally, but let's look at the broader picture here. If it is found out that there is a direct connection between the Cuban government and the assassination of President Kennedy, uh, given the current political environment, um, there are going to be demands for actions against Cuba. Still? And, you know, go, there, I, I guarantee you on the Republican right, there would be out, you know, outrageous, you know, calls for retaliation, military, otherwise. And, you know, people forget, and this is what I think led to a lot of stuff being put under lock and key. Um, at the conclusion of the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962, the previous year, the United States gave a guarantee to the Soviet Union we would not invade Cuba. So now if it found out that, you know, Castro killed the president um, through this assassination, Lee Harvey Oswald, uh, the cries in 1963 would have been, we have to take out Castro, invade Cuba, which would have led to a similar situation, as I alluded to earlier, that started World War One. You probably could have had a shooting war. And that's if you look at the documents and you hear the people's oral histories, um, the main players, this is what they were most concerned about. Lyndon Johnson certainly was. They didn't want a larger conflict to come out of it. They were afraid of another World War I possibility. And, you know, to this day, you know, it's, I think it's a very sensitive geopolitical matter. Does it help then? And, and what it sounds like is, is you, your... If, if there is an, um, a conspiracy he- here, and certainly if you watch JFK by um, uh, Oliver Stone, everybody, including you and I, were involved in the conspiracy. Yeah, he's, uh, he's over the top. Okay, but it sounds like y- your leaning is if there was any kind of conspiracy, it probably maybe had something to do with the Cubans. But if that was the right. case, the fact that Castro just died, does that diminish any worries about this now? Well, his brother's still in charge. True enough, true enough. And his brother said in the early 1960s his goal in life was to drop a atomic bomb on New York City. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, he actually said that. So, I mean, it's, 
and right now there is a thaw in the relations, and Cuba is opening up, but um, we'll see. I, I probably, I, I bet until Raul Castro is dead, we probably there might be more stuff coming out then. It'll be interesting to see what the Cuban archives hold, and that's only going to happen when Cuba finally um, opens up and democratizes, if at all. Well, one of the caveats I, I've, I understand about these Kennedy documents is that it's still, there is still a trigger mechanism that the president, which will be Donald Trump at the time, could say no. The president could actually overrule the ruling and say, no, these are still going to be kept under lock and key. Do you expect that to be the case? Or because it's not a Democratic president, because it's Donald Trump, that he's going to say, no, no, out there, let's, let's get him out there? No, I mean, especially this president, he's um, curious. I mean, he certainly is uh, prone to conspiracy theories, um, I think. Just out of his own curiosity, he'd, he'd want these, the, these files opened. And the fact that it's a Democratic president, he's a Republican, I know, he's, why would it concern him? Let's back up just to the very beginning for a second. I should have asked this right at the back. Why does this still fascinate us? We're talking about this again. I, I've said it a few times. It's 1963. It's a long, long time ago. And we, there are other leaders who have been assassinated. There are other famous people who have been killed. There have been other presidents and other world leaders who have been killed. Why does this story in particular hold such fascination for everybody? Well, I think timing is everything. Um, President Kennedy was assassinated at a time when America was arguably had its greatest um, power in the world, relatively speaking. Um, booming economy, um, and, you know, with his death, it seemed you know, as if the United States uh, declined as a great power, and then we got more and more involved in Vietnam. And then Watergate happened after that. Um, if you look at public opinion polls in the early 1960s, the trust for the government was like 90%, you know, the trust in the states and presidents and so forth. Now you look at the polls, what is it, beneath 20%? I mean, it seemed like it's like an unimaginable golden era where, you know, people trusted the government, trusted our institutions, trusted our leaders. And JFK, uh, whether you believe it or not, or agree with it or not, seemed to be the last leader, at least according to the polling done, that uh, people put a lot of faith in. And the interesting thing also that spins out of this is that, it, it, I mean, by any stretch, anytime there's a leader or anybody who's assassinated, it's a, it's a tragic story. This one, though, has become an industry unto itself. A lot of people have made an awful lot of money and made careers and, and whatever off this particular case. Right, and I, I think that's when it gets really kind of sorted and, you know, kind of uh, not too uh, attractive. You know, I, I think President Kennedy, what he accomplished as president in his own life, um, his political career, um, it, it provides plenty of material historians. You don't have to delve into the assassination. But at the same time, the assassination happened, and it had a major historic impact. And, you know, I guess a lot of questions being asked, how would the country have been if JFK had lived? Well, that's the great unanswerable question. But the amazing thing is that, and I was thinking about this today, you would like to think that, okay, you know, the people who are going to be making money off something like this are, uh, you know, folks who just sort of jump in on the periphery and, and, and find a, a way to squeeze a few bucks out of a sad story. The city of Dallas has actually probably done as well as anybody with this. It's a major tourist attraction now. The, the Texas School Book Depository is now a museum, and Dealey Plaza is now a historic site with people crawling all over it every day. Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, when you look at it, too, you go to Washington, D.C., Ford Theater. I mean, it's kind of uh, 
some grisly artifacts. You can go across the street where Lincoln's body, body was brought and laid, laid out, and, you know, you can touch the bed, and, you know, apparently the blood-soaked bed where, you know, Lincoln expired. Um, that's always been kind of a part of American history. Um, but you have to remember that, like Lincoln, Kennedy, you know, he was died for a cause. Uh, he was mm. seen as a martyr. And in Kennedy's case, you know, he had um, put his neck out politically um, embracing civil rights, the first president to do so really since Abraham Lincoln um, in the 1860s. So, I mean, there is that kind of historical link between the two uh, presidents. And they both, unfortunately, uh, died under tragic circumstances. So we get back to the documents, and I, I have to believe that as a, as a professor, as a serious academic, these documents will hold some interest for you, certainly, uh, and for a lot of other academics who study American history. It will also, I'm sure, they will also hold lots of interest for the theorists and the conspiracy theorists and all the other people. From your experience in this world, from what you've studied, what percent of the people who actually spend real time in this are serious academics and people who look at this honestly, and how many are just complete wingnuts and nut jobs? <laughs> Probably about 20% are serious. Okay. The rest is just like, oh, I mean, there's so many theories. Like, my, my favorite is uh, the connection to extraterrestrials. Yes, that, at Roswell. Well, right, yeah. <laughs> there's a group called Magic 12 that President Truman <laughs> apparently is set up, and yeah, it's the Roswell crash, and... President Kennedy was asking questions about it, so they had to get rid of him. I mean, it was just, I mean, you can't make this stuff up. (laughs) You know what? If it hadn't been a theory that someone had put out on a website, we would have believed it was an X-Files episode. Right. (laughs) But but it's interesting, given uh, the presidential election down here that we've just had, where, you know, you have these hackers in, you know, uh, Eastern Europe flooding um, Facebook and other social media sites with, fake news stories, you know, saying that, you know, I don't know, that pizza parlor in Washington, D.C., Hillary Clinton was running a childhood prostitution ring there, and someone took shots at it uh, a couple of weeks ago, came there. Um, It's kind of a, it's kind of a scary time, and, but I I think in many ways, given kind of the fake news that's out there, and how there's no real kind of um, guardian at the gate, kind of someone kind of telling us, you know, what is right, what is what is false here, because the newspapers have kind of died out here, that um, I think the Kennedy assassination is going to live on a lot longer. It's going to get even wilder. Some of the, the Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.